Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Joe, while you were out, I conducted an interview with educational technologist Mike Sharples on the book he wrote with Rafael Perez y Perez, Story Machines, How Computers Have Become Creative Writers. It's a fascinating read about the nature of storytelling, our history of attempting to instill the spirit of storytelling into the machine, where we seem to be going with this technology, and quite remarkably, where we are already. Well, I can't wait to hear this interview. All right. Well, without further ado, let's jump right in. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be on it. Uh, the book uh, co-authored with uh, Rafael Perez y Perez is Story Machines, How Computers Have Become Creative Writers, publishing July 5th. Uh, it's a terrific read, uh, but it has to be stressed from the outset that, that storytelling isn't just a pastime that humans engage in. Storytelling is something greater, right? Yeah. Um, so storytelling, we suggest in the book, is something that's fundamental to human existence and has been for millennia. Uh, it's suggested that instead of language coming first and then storytelling evolving after that, perhaps it's the other way around. 
that perhaps storytelling started as a way of human communication through mime, through uh, expressive gestures, and then language followed from that. So we want to make the point that storytelling is fundamental at a neural level. It's how we make sense of the world. It's at a cognitive level about how we create narratives to explain our existence. And at a social world, you know, it's the stories we tell to each other that makes us who we are. So when we're talking about machines engaging in storytelling or story creation, we're really getting deep into human creativity and human identity then. Yeah, we are. And it's both a, a fascinating uh, insight into human creativity, and it's also something a threat. So for centuries, writers have been uh, fascinated by this idea that a, that a machine might take over their craft, that a machine might become a storyteller. Uh, it goes right back to Jonathan Swift, um, for example, in Gulliver's Travels. Um, coming across a weird uh, academy where um, apprentices were manipulating a story machine which churned out uh, academic texts. Right through to modern writers, um, such as Roald Dahl, he wrote a short story about how an author um, was selling his soul to a machine that generated short stories for him. So it's become something that particularly professional authors have been fascinated by this idea that a machine might be as creative as a human and also giving us insight into human creativity. Now, of course, it's one thing to, to imagine these machines. You point out that they're, they're necessary precursors in linguistics, literary analysis, and other fields to even get to the point of considering asking a machine or, or, or making a machine that can write a story or novel for you. Yeah, um, I think there are, there are a number of ways we can approach this. So one of them is to, to look at language. So we are language machines. We, we have been trained in how to manipulate language as humans. And we can now design machines that can copy that in a very expressive ways. So I'm sure we'll come on to that. But AI systems such as GPT-3 that are expert wordsmiths. So that's one route. Another route is simulating characters. So uh, some of the newer computer games now have um, stories, non-player characters that can tell stories to the human players. And then the third way is to build models of the creative mind. And that's what my colleague uh, Rafael Perez has been um, doing for many years in his Mexico program is trying to build a model of the human creative mind. So there are different routes for coming at modeling storytelling and understanding storytelling with machines. And one that you mentioned that uh, I think is very fascinating is uh, Vladimir Propp's uh, morphology of the folktale. Uh, this idea of, of, of taking apart uh, a folktale tradition and, and figuring out like what are the basic strokes, what are the basic elements, and, and, and thus creating, I guess, sort of the palette for recreating stories. Yeah, this was back in the early 20th century um, that Vladimir Prop was part of a group of Russian linguists who and folktale um, uh, academics who became interested in the morphology, the structure of folktales. And he realized that Russian folktales had this very similar structure, just as fairy tales in other Western um, traditions have. And so he set about trying to write a set of rules that would both analyze these folk tales, 
and show their underlying structure, but also could be turned around to generate them. That if you uh, use these rules, essentially as what we now call programs or algorithms, they could be employed to create new folk tales. And so he set the foundations for the structural analysis of stories way back, uh, what, 120 years ago now. And interestingly, uh, some of the earliest computer programs to generate stories were based on props formalism. It was really, if you look at it, it's really like a, a very pared down computer algorithm. Now, as for some of the first actual text-generating machines, uh, you mentioned uh, a few different uh, examples of this. Which, which are the most uh, important to mention, or which one is the most important to mention? So one of the earliest ones was by Christopher Strachey, who was a colleague of Alan Turing working in Manchester. Uh, and he developed a very, very early computer program on one of the first um, prototype computers that generated love letters, Victorian love letters. Um, and we can speculate on why he would want to you know, write a program to generate love letters, but he did, and pin them up on the wall of his lab. And then since then, um, there have been a number of people who have particularly taken a linguistic approach. And so one of the pioneers was uh, a linguist called Sheldon Klein. And Sheldon Klein had this um, big, grandiose project to try and model um, human language production uh, as, a, as, a, as an algorithm, as a computer program, uh, and then through this trying to understand the origins of language. And so along with a group of colleagues, mainly PhD students, he produced one of the earliest programs that generated stories. It generated murder mysteries, a sort of country house, Agatha Christie type mysteries. Uh, and it was part of this big project to formalize language in a generative way. Problem was the program, the stories it generated were pretty trivial. Uh, it, there was you know, people gathered at the country house. There was a murder. Um, somebody tried to investigate it. The end. And so, although it was seen as a novelty at the time, it wasn't really respected for the great linguistic project that lasted for 20 or 30 years. In the 1990s, there were a number of attempts to write entire novels by computer. And probably the most interesting one was by a guy called Scott French, who programmed a Mac computer to generate a novel in the style of Jacqueline Susan. I've got it here. It's called Just This Once. And mm -hmm. it is a complete published novel in the style of the um, potboiling author called Jacqueline Susan. And it, it seems to be genuine. There's a picture of him with his Mac computer on the back <laughs> cover of the book. And it took him eight years to design this very early AI system that would mimic the style of this author. And uh, he engaged in a kind of dialogue with the program to generate an entire 300-page novel. So that was probably the first, and right up to this day, greatest example of story writing with machine. What's fascinating now is that what took him eight years to do could now be done in a few seconds with um, the most recent AI um, generator programs. 
Yeah, in the book you you write, I'm just to read a quick quote, quote, it took just 20 years to go from a program that wrote love letters to one that created complete short stories, uh, and a further 20 years to a published 350-page novel in partnership with a computer. Uh, it, it's fascinating to think about uh, you know, this, this, the, the technological advancement during that time. Uh, in, in broad strokes, like what, I mean, what, what were the key advancements going on here that made this possible? Well, the first advancement was um, to be able to have interactive computer systems that you could program um, in a high-level programming language, and that's what Christopher Strachey uh, and Alan Turing were working on. Uh, uh, and th they could then demonstrate this in generating very simple um, love letters. The next stage was to be able to produce grammars generative grammars, uh, and this goes back to the work of Prop, who realised that it, you could have grammars that didn't just generate individual sentences, but could generate entire stories, that you could describe the structure of a story in terms of something like a formal grammar. And that in the 1980s, there were a number of projects uh, to put that grammar into a program that would generate a short story. That's what Sheldon Klein and his team did. And then the next step beyond that was to write symbolic AI programs that modeled the style of a particular writer. And that was the great achievement of um, Scott French. It was a symbolic AI expert system of the 1990s style. And then we come right up to date and there are programs like GPT-3 which are hugely competent and well-trained language systems. So they aren't rule-based systems. They don't have something like uh, the uh, Sheldon Klein grammar inside them. They have uh, been trained on billions of pieces of text, and they have um, many millions of interconnections that uh, create an internal language model, which they then use to generate text in particular styles. You can start it in a style and it will continue in that style. You can give it an instruction of what sort of story to write and it will continue uh, in that story. But the really important thing to say is that there are two different sorts of AI. So the sort of AI that Scott French used was writing explicit rules. That's why it took him eight years to code these rules um, to imitate one person's style. The GPT-3 type AI transformer programs induce, infer those rules from being trained on billions and billions of pieces of text. So they're two different sorts of AI. Both have their strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and one of the fascinating things of the future is whether we can put them together, whether we can merge those two different sorts of AI into the sort of universal story machine. Wow. And so GPT-3 is the current model, is that correct? Or, or yeah. are we at four um, yet? Uh, so there isn't a GPT-4 yet, um, although I'm sure there's one in the pipeline. They're continually revising GPT-3. Um, just for those who don't know, GPT, the GPT models were developed by, and still are being developed by a company called OpenAI that was founded by a group of entrepreneurs, including Elon Musk and others. And that company was set up to uh, explore the opportunities of AI for social good. 
it has developed a number of different programs. Uh, there's one that it's developed for art called DALI, um, which can do the same for art and images as GPT-3 can for, for words and stories. But um, the GPT-3, um, now it's its third generation. It, in essence, what it's been done, what's done, how it works is it's been trained on billions of pieces of text. It uses those um, texts to form an internal model uh, of both the surface structure of language, but also the internal structure of language, essentially how the world works. And then initially, the early GPT models were sentence completers, like very highly trained, souped up sentence completers of the sort that you've got on your mobile phone. But they can look back at the last 500 words or so. They have an, a big attention window. So they, they know what they've written before and they use this to continue in the same style, the same structure. So they give a very plausible uh, simulation, a very plausible uh, uh, indication of uh, coherent language as if it were being written by a human. Now, the problem is it's highly believable, but it doesn't have any sense of itself. So these systems can't reflect on what they've written. They can't look back and say, does this make sense? Uh, does this fit with a good model of the world? Is it legal, honest, decent? It doesn't. In essence, it's they're amoral. They don't have any internal sense of what's right of morality. And so as story machines, they're great because they can tell fascinating, plausible, engaging, sometimes even poignant stories. But for other purposes, like writing newspaper articles or writing student essays, then they can be dangerous because they don't know what they've written and they don't know whether the, what they've written is decent, honest and truthful. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like 
feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Now, um, our listeners can, can actually get a taste of this uh, um, by going to story-machines.net. Uh, you have uh, an interface here where you can put in just a title or also a title and uh, and some text, like an opening line of a of a story, uh, and this is powered by GPT three, correct? Yeah, that's right. So what I did was uh, wrote a website with an interface to the most recent GPT three language model. So it basically provides a very simple way for you to write the title of a story, a few opening words, press the create button, and it comes back with. Uh, about a 200, 250-word um, introduction to a short story. So it gives you a taste of mm -hmm. what GPT-3 can do. And, yeah, I really recommend that you go and try it. Um, 
I launched it just a couple of days ago. So people have already been generating fascinating short stories um, using that. So, so go and give it a try. It's story-machines.net. Yeah, I was I was firing this up uh, while I was reading the book uh, uh, yesterday, and uh, yeah, I eventually I was having to bring my son over and show it to him. <laughs> I was really impressed, uh, toying around with it, like trying trying a title that sort of suggested a certain genre, maybe throwing in a, a you know, first sentence that that was uh, that rec- rec- that referenced a certain genre, and then also. I was really impressed when I would say, put in a, a title and then put in the first line of an existing short story by an author. I think I used Clark Ashton Smith as an example, and I used um, um, Cormac McCarthy. I put in a line of Cormac McCarthy's work, and I was impressed at how well it seemed to model a, a portion of writing as if it were by these authors. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'll give you an example, because it's quite quite good to show an example. You mm-hmm. can cut it out if you want to. So. So here's an example, one that I did, on Ernest Hemingway in London. The fog came in from the river and it was cold for April. I walked up past the British Museum and turned down towards Holborn. I had a lunch date with Harry at the Criterion and I was early. It was one of those heavy grey days that seemed to press down on the city, weighing it down. The traffic moved slowly through the streets and the people hurried along with their heads down, trying to get out of the cold. I glanced in the windows of the shops as I walked, looking for something to buy Harry for his birthday. I knew he'd appreciate a good bottle of scotch, but I wanted to get him something else as well. And that's just the start of a a story in Ernest Hemingway style. And you can give it whatever style you want. Mm -hmm. I found it works best when you do a a weird juxtaposition. So there was uh, someone just a few hours ago, did one on uh, the sad sandwich. <laughs> and it was a really poignant, sad story about a poor, neglected sandwich. So try doing some some juxtapositions of words like that. Yes, absolutely. And I'd love to hear back from, from listeners after they've uh, uh, toyed around with this and explored it. But of, of course, yeah, recognizing the power of of this uh, technology, uh, yeah, we, we certainly get into this this area of of anxiety, uh, perhaps, but also uh, hope and opportunity. Um, I, I guess on the anxiety side of things, the first place my mind went is I, I remember seeing Max Tegmark uh, reference a kind of uh, an illustration that was like a topography of human abilities and jobs, with the idea that. At the higher elevations, we're going to be more protected from the, the rising sea levels of AI. So chess and Jeopardy were already in the water. Uh, speech recognition, investment, and social interaction, they're in the lowlands. They're going next. And then uh, in this particular image, we had science as the highest peak, just above the peaks of book writing and AI design. So I was just wondering, do, do you feel like this representation uh, was accurate or and or have the waters just risen so high already? I think they've risen high already. I think the ones that are going to be protected from the rising tide of AI are probably the caring professions, um, the nurses, uh, the child carers. Um, but any profession that uh, works with words is going to find both an opportunity and a threat, I think, in generative AI. So the opportunity is that it's a new kind of tool. The tools that we've had up till now have tended to be ones that slow down writing. Um, 
like um, Thesaurus or um, Spell Corrector that they, they make you um, pause and check. You can do them at the end, but there's always a temptation to look up a word to slow down. What's different about these is that they can be used to speed up your writing. You can, and I've tried doing this, writing a, a paragraph when it starts to dry up, then handing it over to the machine to write the next paragraph. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not a fiction writer, but I found it quite empowering to use GPT-3 as a writing buddy. So I would write a paragraph, it would write the next paragraph and probably take it off in some unexpected direction that mm -hmm. I would then have to follow. Uh, and it might introduce a new character, a plot twist. And so uh, both as a tool for budding writers and also perhaps a prop for um, professional writers, particularly ones with deadlines um, to meet, then that's the opportunity. I think the threat is the inverse side of that that if you either see it as a crutch that um, uh, rather than trying to do your own writing, you just hand it over to the machine, then it's very easy to become lazy. And also, as I've said, they are amoral machines. So if you're trying to do scientific writing or you're trying to do accurate um, journalism, then beware because they may well throw in some entirely fake research study, some entirely inaccurate fake reference, um, perhaps reference to some you know, completely nonsensical uh, non um, or uh, inaccurate uh, event that's happened in the world. So you've always got to beware of the facts that it throws up. And there's a good reason for that, that it isn't a fact checker. It, it isn't a Wikipedia or even a Google search. It is a language machine. It loves, um, in an anthropomorphic sense, it loves playing with words. Um, but those words don't necessarily make sense. So if you're going to use tools like GPT-3 as aids for writing, then you have to be very careful that you cross-check the facts uh, and the, uh, the output of that machine to make sure that it is accurate uh, and honest and truthful my mind also went to um the, the possibility of, of of almost accidental plagiarism uh because i i put in the first line of a clark ashton smith story and it it threw in a, a fascinating plot twist that was not in the original story and i don't think i've ever seen in a story and so part of me was wondering like well, well you know I, sh I should latch onto this maybe i could use this but then the other part uh you know the lights coming on in my mind were saying but hold on this just because uh, i haven't read it doesn't mean it doesn't already exist out there might uh we run into situations where uh the, the ai is is reproducing something you know, perhaps, you know, honestly, if we want to use that term, uh, when in, in, in actuality it may exist out there in some story or another. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to note is that it's not working at the sort of word and sentence level. So it's mm -hmm. not copying bits of text from the web or from published right. books. It's working below that, um, basically at the phoneme level. It's putting together pieces of words, uh, but it's putting together these pieces of words in a you know, hugely proficient way. So I've tried taking the output of GPT-3 and doing Google search on phrases and sentences, mm -hmm. and you don't find them. So 
it seems like they are genuinely producing um, novel pieces of text. So, for example, if students are going to use these for writing essays, mm-hmm. which is already happening, they're already um, companies that are advertising the services of AI generators for students to write their essays, plagiarism checkers won't detect them. I've tried putting them through plagiarism checkers, and they gave sort of 95 to 100% originality. So they're not copying bits of text from the web. They are genuinely generating new language. Now, of course, there are phrases that may pre-exist. And if you give highly constrained uh, styles like Shakespeare's sonnets, then it may come up with um, previous lines from other Shakespeare sonnets. But providing you give it a broad enough brief, providing you give it a general enough style, even if it's from a particular author, then it will generate original text. And it's still a bit scary as to, you know, I've talked about this with other people and said, but surely it's copying from the web. No, it isn't. It's generating, it's generating new text in the style of that author or in the style of that piece of fiction or um, piece of journalism. Wow. So uh, you already touched on like the, the, the collaborative possibilities here, but uh, having touched on uh, school papers and such, what do you think are the, the educational opportunities with this uh, technology? I think the main educational opportunities are for beginning writers. It's a way to explore expressivity and creativity. One of the problems when you're beginning writing is you tend to see everything as being a linear um, process. You write some words, you write some more words, there's a flow of writing. It's very difficult to get out of that flow and to think about alternative ways of expressing something, how it might be different. And what machines like GPT-3 can do is help you to see another way of continuing another way of expressing your ideas. It will look back over the last 500 words or so that you've written and perhaps take it in new directions. So it's a way for budding writers to explore possibilities. And you can take what you've written so far and press the create button a number of times and each time it'll take your writing in a different direction. So that's one way. Another way is for in a class situation, for a teacher to generate a number of different articles on a topic. So to give a topic like, you know, what's the effect of climate change on rising sea levels and get it to generate a number of different articles and then to critique them. Because as I say, it doesn't always get its facts right. And so to look on these as pieces of journalism you might find on the web and to take a critical stance. So it's it's a good tool for a teacher to um, give some generated articles to students and say, criticise these. We know they're written by machine. So what's wrong with them? Generally, the surface structure is pretty good. The spelling's correct. The style is good. But the deeper you go into these machine-generated texts, the more you find problems with them. So it's It's a good class exercise. And then lastly, I think, is that it's going to be another tool companion that writers use. 
just as in the early days of word processors, there was a lot of criticism that it was um, you know, slowing down writing, that you were reading from the screen rather than from the page, uh, that style checkers were um, making writing more conformist. There will be, quite rightly, people who say these new tools are uh, forcing a machine-type creativity. But I think if we use them wisely to extend and to critique our own creativity, then there are interesting uh, and exciting opportunities. Do you think we better understand human creativity for having gone through this technological journey? That's why I started on this, uh, this journey with my colleague, Raphael. Uh, it's because I started work as a PhD student on trying to understand children's creative writing uh, and to develop tools for children to develop their creativity. And I became fascinated by machine creativity to try and explore what is it that a machine can do in terms of creativity and where does that stop? So what are the limits of machine creativity? And beyond those limits, how does that relate to human creativity? What is it that we, we can do that a machine can't? And now over the years, perhaps the gap between machine creativity and human creativity is narrowing, but it's still there. And it gives us insights into the way in which we write and the way in which we think. And because these new generative AI programs don't work in a human-like way, then it becomes a really interesting challenge to say what's alien about them, what's different about the writing they produce that shows they aren't human, and what does that say about human experience and human creativity? Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now, looking into the future and getting more speculative, um, say I'm a fan of Frank Herbert's Dune novels. Do you see foresee a future in which one would j- just be able to ask an AI to generate uh, the final books in the series that Frank would have written, uh, perhaps more novels in this universe he created, uh, that sort of thing? Or say you're a fan of a particular short story author and you're, you're like, why would I read anything other than stories by this, this particular author? I'm just going to ask the AI to generate more of them for me. Um, it, might we easily arrive at such a future? And if so, and if so like, what does that, that mean for us as both consumers and producers of, of, of creative writing? I think we'll arrive at that, um, at that space pretty soon. I think they will be pastiches, um, and, but they may be 
pastiches that you can't tell from um, the original, and that there will be certainly fans of you know, authors like Frank Herbert who will be happy to accept them as generated in Frank Herbert style, uh, particularly if they have you know, interesting new characters, interesting new plots. That will happen with short stories, um, Neil Gaiman-type um, short stories, I'm sure, that will happen quite soon. Um, if it hasn't happened already, there may be you know, fan fiction forums where those sorts of AI-generated pastiches are already circulating. But I think there's a, the future is more likely to be around interactive fiction. So mm. um, at the moment... Um, Computer games are kind of reaching a plateau that the graphics are becoming more and more realistic. Um, the interaction is becoming more and more engaging, but the AI is lagging behind. Soon you'll be able to have AI-based characters in games that can tell stories, that uh, you not only ask it to solve a problem or guide you um, to the treasure, but you can engage with them as conversational partners. They will take the story forwards. And once you do that, then you can get on to interactive soap operas, uh, interactive worlds where you've got both human and machine partners. Now, that can take you into all sorts of dark areas, um, but also into all sorts of you know, engaging aspects of new interaction, new immersive fiction, um, new types of social interaction that involve both machines and humans. So I think rather than trying to emulate a particular writer, I think you know, developing interactive fiction where you have a continual um, story that you can dip in and out of with other characters, human and machine, are likely to be the, the most engaging and probably the most influential uses of story machines in the near future. Yeah, in the book, you go into to several different uh, wonderful examples of, uh, of of how we've reached this point, uh, uh, you know, along the line, uh, along the road with video games. Uh, examples I wasn't familiar with, like uh, Col Colossal Cave Adventure, Dwarf Fortress. Um, so I, I, I guess most of these examples have these been these these haven't necessarily been part of, like, say, the mainstream of video game culture. No, they, they haven't been part of the mainstream. They've been a kind of tributary. So the mainstream has been sort of from Pong uh, and Space Invaders onwards in terms of graphics and interactivity. Uh, and you know, then you know, we get to Grand Theft Auto where you have hugely realistic simulated worlds. Um, and it's the gameplay, the action, the game mechanics that's really important. But there's been another tributary that's um, been uh, mainly followed by people who are fascinated by stories and words and storytelling. And it started with Colossal Cave Adventure, which, for those of you who don't know, was in the late 1970s um, by um, a couple who were uh, cavers. And um, the uh, Crowder, I think that's his name, I'd have to check it, um, he developed this program which generated um, a world that you could explore. You could go down and explore a cave system 
and it was all done entirely through text. So um, uh, you are going through a dark forest, you find a grate uh, in the forest floor, uh, uh, what do you do next? You type go down, it then comes back with a description of where you are. You are underneath the forest floor in the wellspring um, of uh, a stream. And then you can go left, you can go right, um, you can go down. So you are guiding this character through a textual world. Uh, And the more you get into it, the more you engage with not only descriptions, but also characters in that world. And you can collect things, do things. So it's a textual world that you're exploring. Um, Since then, there have been other extensions of that which make these textual characters more believable. So as you interact with them, they can not only give you things, but um, they can behave as real um, agents in the world would, real humans would. Uh, And Dwarf Fortress is an example of that where um, you've got a hugely realistic world. Um, and there was an example I gave in the book about um, drunk cats. Uh, and the designers of Dwarf Fortress had uh, created all sorts of properties of animals, but the ability to, for, of cats to drink alcohol had deliberately not been programmed in. But in the tavern in Dwarf Fortress, there were these cats that were lying dead. And only through interacting with the code did they understand it, did they realise that what had happened was that the cats went into this tavern, that people in the tavern had spilt alcohol on the floor, the cats had walked through, the cats had licked their paws, the cats had become poisoned by alcohol. So you have these hugely rich and realistic worlds that are realised through text. And so it's become, as I say, a bit of a tributary of game playing um, because you do have to interact with, with text, with words. But as they begin to merge now with the mainstream games, then you will have spoken dialogue. You will be able to um, meet your favourite characters um, in um, soap operas, in you know, streaming series, and you can talk to them, you can um, go on dates with them, you can uh, go holidays with them, Um, you can be part of their story. Uh, So it's bringing together those two streams of game design, these rich visual worlds, and now these textual, believable story worlds that I think is going to be the next generation of uh, interactive games. Well, it's going to be really exciting to see this uh, come together. Yeah, I think it will. Um, And I I think one of the things in the future, one of the opportunities in the future is that you will be able to live in these worlds for an extended period of time. So you don't just play the game for 40 minutes, just Mm -hmm. like you have a, a TV series. You'll have a TV series where you live in this world. Now, that's, you know, both scary and uh, exciting to be able to live for extended time in in a virtual world where you can talk to and engage with the characters. So what do you think the machines are going to want to tell stories about? So it's been suggested that because machines don't have human experience, 
they will never be able to tell stories that are experientially rich. They don't know the human condition. They've never been there. They've never fallen in love. They've never seen a sunset. So they will reach a plateau where they may produce pastiches, but they won't be able to describe or to evoke the human condition. They won't be able to engage you in any deep human way in a story. Now, I'm sure that's right. It's possible you could get around that by having embodied storytellers. So embodied robots that can go out into the world, that can gaze at a sunset, that can go for walks, that can feel the wind in their um, metal faces. (laughs) But there's another possibility, which is that already programs have something approaching a social life, that they are connected to other entities on the web. They are part of uh, a social network. And if they can tell stories about their worlds, their worlds of being entities on the web, their worlds as being part of a connected internet system where there are um, viruses, where there are um, software breakdowns, breakthroughs, entities that interact with each other in a computational way that we can't express, then they could be valuable in two ways. One is that they could help us to understand this complex system that is the World Wide Web. They could help to interpret um, the the, the growing, uh, changing nature of the World Wide Web in human language. But also, they could tell stories Um, They could tell stories of their travels through um, the internet. They could tell stories of how they became um, beings that were taught and learned through interaction with other objects in the web. So I don't think it's necessary to be embodied to have human-type experience in order to tell interesting stories. But they may tell quite alien stories of life on the web. And to me, that's much more exciting and interesting than just spouting a pastiche of a human story. This reminds me of something you you bring up in in the book that uh, that, that I I've, that, that really rang true and uh, and also made me you know rethink a, a number of things. And that is that the uncanny valley, which is a concept that most of us are familiar with when it comes to um, uh, robots made in the in the likeness of a human being, or or certainly when we get into computer generated imagery in films. But you point out that that this uh, that uh, the uncanny valley isn't really a thing in storytelling. In one sense, it isn't, because stories are meant to be disturbing and unsettling. That's why we read science fiction. That's why we read crime novels, because they're meant to be disturbing. So having a machine that uh, is in some sense uncanny or disturbing in the language that it produces and the stories it tells, I think will only add to the richness of storytelling. But where I think there is an uncanny valley is if we then say, was this written by a machine? And if so, what kind of machine? So is it a machine that was trained on billions of words from uh, the, the web, but has had no experience of the world? In that case, how can it be reporting on the world? How can it pretend to have a human-like experience? 
So if we know that the author is a machine, then it becomes unsettling because we then start to judge. Perhaps it's very plausible, very poignant, very evocative prose against human experience. And we realize that it hasn't had that human experience. So how do we know whether other stories are really um, you know, the product of human experience? And what does it mean to tell a story based on experience? So the stories themselves, I don't think, um, need worry us because stories do have you know, an uncanniness to them. But I think once we start to question the author of those stories and whether that story is based on genuine experience, then it becomes unsettling. All right. Well, the book, again, is Story Machines, How Computers Have Become Creative Writers. Uh, it should come out July 5th. And uh, Mike, thanks once more for taking time out of your day and chatting with us on the show. It was a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. So thank you for asking me. All right. So there you have it. Thanks again to Mike Sharples for taking time out of his day to chat with me. Uh, again, that book is Story Machines, How Computers Have Become Creative Writers. It's available now uh, wherever you get your books. And if you want to get a taste uh, of this for yourself, you can go to story-machines.net and uh, ex ex experiment a little bit uh, like we've been experimenting. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find it in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Artifact or Monster Fact episodes on Wednesdays, Listener Mail on Mondays, and on Friday, we set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.